everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Dave Girard, CEO of the recently IPO'd FinTech company, Upstart. Upstart is an online lending marketplace that provides personal loans using non-traditional variables, such as education and employment, to predict creditworthiness. If you listened to our episode the other week with the National Consumer Law Center, you know credit and lending is a huge issue in America. Upstart is using artificial intelligence and rigorous machine learning to attack this issue, making it not only a great company, but a wonderful mission. Dave seemed to have the traditional path in life set in stone, having rode in college, spending time in big tech, and then climbing to senior leadership at Google. However, he left Google in 2012 to found Upstart, a decision that culminated with their successful IPO in December. In today's episode, Dave and I discuss his deep, almost existential inspiration for leaving a great role at Google to start a lending company, how he thought about navigating regulatory concerns from day one, what needed to be true for bank partners to trust him, why he knew it was time to IPO, his take on SPACs, his thoughts on Bitcoin, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, Dave, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on as a guest today, you know, relatively fresh off of Upstart's IPO. Great to be here, Ryan. So I've heard some interesting stories about your background, you know, jumping from Google and then to founding. Can you just walk us through your journey to founding Upstart with really a focus on when you started to identify this problem and deciding to take the plunge on solving it? Sure. So, you know, I, I think my career started in a almost like traditional, I don't know, East Coast sense of like I graduated from Dartmouth. I worked in consulting for a couple of years. I went to a graduate school in Michigan, you know, went back into consulting at, at Booz Allen in the 90s. So I started in that sort of, I just say, a little bit traditional career, went, went to Apple ended up at Google. So, so I was in Silicon Valley, but had, you know, had worked in a startup, but never really started one. And, you know, after eight years at Google, it was a great run. It was clearly the professional experience of my life at the time. And, you know, I just came to this point where, you know, I was actually in my mid forties and had had great success there. And it was sort of this question of, you know, stick with it. It's hard to leave Google and it's obviously lucrative to stay at Google. But I just had this itch of like, you know, is there something uh, bigger I could do? Is this the coolest, most awesome thing I'll do with my life? Or is there something better out there? And, you know, I had never started my own company. So it was sort of this combination of openness or desire to prove myself independent of Google, if you will. And then just having a lot of sort of creative ideas come to me. And, and one of them really just came, you know, related to how particularly younger people have credit access to capital and whether there weren't some more modern uh, approaches to attacking that problem. And ultimately, you know, that became Upstart. So going to Upstart, for some of our listeners who are not familiar, what exactly is the company? What are its products? And you know, what problem is it trying to solve? Sure. Upstart is what we call an AI lending platform. And what that really means is we are, we are applying artificial intelligence to the problem of consumer lending. Um, lending is a you know, 5,000-year-old industry with that is, you know, at its core, a risk-based industry. You, you give somebody money to buy a car, buy a house, or, or, or fund a business or whatever, and you, you hope it gets paid back. And 
we are really, you know, we think among the first to apply AI to this very large business, focused on the consumer part of lending, uh, not real estate or or business lending, et cetera, which is equally interesting, but focused on the, the challenge of using AI to make much more predictive models. And that means, uh, generally speaking, you can have more accuracy in the model, resulting in much higher approval rates, much lower loss rates, and a very much automated, you know, almost instantaneous experience of accessing the credit. And the last thing I'll say is we, we're not a, a bank or a lender ourselves. We have taken the approach of um, working with banks to power their lending efforts. And we also you know, we send consumers to them and we provide the AI technology to help banks successfully and profitably originate credit. So does Upstart or has Upstart ever funded or originated their own loans? Well, we've always worked with banks, so we've never really originated loans at any scale, other than a few tests. In the early days, we probably funded maybe as much as 20% of our loans. It was a little bit like you have to prove to yourself. You know, when you're building the first version or the second version of the model, there's going to be plenty of skeptics out there, and, and banks are incredibly conservative, as, as well as you know, capital markets, buyers, institutions, credit funds, etc. So we certainly had to eat the dog food to some extent in the early days, but it was never more than maybe 20%. Today, you know, we fund maybe just a low single digit percentage, mostly for testing and validating something entirely new that we're not quite ready to foist onto our bank partners yet. And then, so who's maybe one of your typical customers and what is their journey and how they might interact with Upstart? Well, Upstart, it's a general purpose consumer offering, but you know, because of who we are and where we started, we tend to have a young demographic, a well-educated demographic. So you know, the average or median borrower on our platform is probably 28 years old. They tend to be college educated, you know, fairly high degree of, of college education. And this is really because originally this was a demographic we saw as very underserved in, in one with the addition of more data and more interesting algorithms that we could serve better than uh, the traditional sort of credit score centric models. And that's sort of held true to today. I mean, the process, everything about it it tends to sort of reach a lot of people that are left out or not particularly well served by the traditional credit system. And uh, that tends to be younger people. It tends to be sometimes recent immigrants, people that just for a lot of reasons fall outside that mainstream credit um, box. Right. So that brings me to a stat that I find really interesting and honestly tough to stomach. So just 45% of Americans have access to bank quality credit, yet 83% of Americans have never even defaulted on a loan. There are many more stats like this, and we just did an episode with the National Consumer Law Center that dives into a lot of issues with credit. So I think it's clear that there are systemic issues with credit scores in the credit system. So, you know, in your mind, what really is the problem with how this process has been traditionally done? Sure. So when you uh, make a loan to somebody as a lender, a bank, what have you, um, you really want to understand the risk associated with that person or that entity repaying it. Uh, Most credit models in the consumer world are based on a credit score and, and maybe a handful of other variables. You know, the credit score was introduced, the FICO score, in 1989. And it's been upgraded and changed a bit, but it's a three-digit number. And a three-digit number could never even come close to modeling the complexity of the real world. So in reality, it's turned into a number that humans can understand and seems, it seems obvious you'd like to have a higher credit score. You, you should give better loans or lower price loans to people with higher credit scores. But it's been kind of a crutch because it's really prevented, in the U.S. anyway, 
a development of much more sophisticated lending models that can much more accurately predict the likelihood of repayment. So we've built a model that has you know, more than 1,600 variables in it. We've had more than 9 million individual repayment events that train it. If you sort of multiply those two together, what that kind of means is you know, this is in the range of $15 billion in training cells. So it's a true AI machine learning based system, just like the same ones that powered you know, Tesla autonomous driving or your Amazon Alexa at home, or it's true machine learning. And, and we are really among the first to apply it to this problem. The big win is when you can identify who's likely not to repay and not extend credit to them, it means you can actually approve a lot of other people and at lower rates. So that sort of lostiness of the classic credit system, which, which is enormous. The inefficiency in credit is huge. Um, the opportunity to remove that, create an accurate system, and thereby serve people a lot better is very obvious. It's not a 10 basis point, 20 basis point type of improvement. It's more like a 100 percentage point improvement. And then, so off of this, I mean, over the last few years, your models must have been changing or quite dynamic and have been changing a lot. What are some of the key insights that you've seen that maybe started from the first way you were designing models and then how they've evolved over time and maybe differences in consumer behavior that you've noticed? Ours is a funnel business. So somebody arrives at our front door, if you will, our digital front door, and is interested in a loan. And from there on, everything we we, we sort of look at as a funnel and do they complete the process of requesting a rate? How hard do you make that for them? Are, there, are they on a mobile device or they're on a desktop device, et cetera? Most are on mobile these days. Um, can you approve them and at what rate? Is it a rate that appeals to them? Assuming they like the rate, you know, how, how sort of quickly can you finally approve that and get them the money that they just uh, asked for? So all those things are things we've just been chipping away at for years with AI models underpinning all of it so that it's gone from something that, you know, when we started, first of all, our approval rates were about 10%. And, you know, the, it, the average person had to upload several documents, four to five different documents. You know, that might be a pay stub, that might be your driver's license, could be a bunch of things depending on the risk. And, um, and it would probably take several days. If you fast forward to today, you know, 70-ish percent of loans, they are approved in the moment. There's no upload of anything and the money is received uh, by the applicant the next business day. So it's a pretty radical transformation. And all of that is possible because of the AI-based models you know, underpinning it. So I do want to cover partnerships. You take this referral fee on these loans from banks. I'm, I'm sure at the start, your product was a tough sell, potentially. What needed to be true for banks to feel good about adopting AI lending and this model? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, banks are not like regular businesses, dare I say. I mean, they, they are regulated in such a way and, and managed in such a way that they just have to think very differently than your just, you know, every other type of industry out there in the sense that there's a lot of sort of protection of, around that business. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of conservatism. So the adoption of new technology into that industry is naturally something that takes a while. And it takes a while really for, it. Now, now I should also add lending or AI lending isn't just like this peripheral thing, like a chatbot on your website or something. This is like the central nervous system of a bank. Lending is right. how they make money. It's, it's what a bank is. So when you go in there and say, we can help you with AI to radically improve your lending, you know, that's a big, big proposition. And it's again, near and dear to them. So 
you know, that means you have to overcome hurdles related to will this work, you know, from a financial perspective, is this actually better? Will it be better in all environments? How will it sort of contribute, you know, to my success in, of my lending programs and my financials? The other side, of course, is, is regulatory, which is, you know, the larger banks have regulators sitting in their offices seven days a week or at least five days a week. And again, probably pre-COVID. Um, but uh, so the reality is they want an assurance that the regulators are supportive of the technologies. And that can be, you know, that can be related to all, all sorts of issues, model governance or risk management or fair lending. Mm -hmm. And so we've had to work year after year with, with all the regulators and there's a lot of different regulators that cover banks in different ways um, to sort of, you know, mainstream this and, and, and generate, you know, general acceptance of this. And it's not something we're done with. I think it's something we'll be doing for years to come. But, you know, the advantage to consumers and the advantage to the banks who lend to them are so dramatic that ultimately we can get regulators on board. We can prove the efficacy of the products and we just have to keep you know, executing against that plan. The power of AI to empower lending is critical. And as idealistic as it sounds, I'm just very excited for FinTech to keep driving efficiency in credit and lending in the coming years. So as you mentioned, lending is a tough business and requires a lot of regulatory buy-in and cooperation. And even just from a reputational standpoint, you know, the Marcus example from a few years back comes to mind where they had two identical, you know, customers, one was male, one was female, and the loan rate was completely different. So Upstart has had plenty of interactions with the CFPB in the past and has received no action letters. What are no action letters and how has Upstart navigated this delicate regulatory environment? First of all, we understood from the very beginning that this was not a kind of break things, move quickly, you know, apologize later type of business because you'll be shut down very quickly in the financial services world. So, you know, it might have worked reasonably well for Uber, at least for a number of years. That approach <laughs> would never work in anything related to financial services, certainly right. not lending because it's so regulated. So, so first of all, you know, our fifth employee at the company is, was a woman named Allison Nickel, who's our general counsel. So we brought in expertise. She joined us from PayPal uh, really in the first month or two of the company's existence. We went and met with the CFPB uh, before, you know, of our own accord, you know, before we even launched. So we sort of knew we were going to go full transparency, um, as cooperative as we can, explaining, you know, the benefit of what we hope to achieve with our product. And that's worked really well. And just for clarity, a no action letter is actually a very good thing. That's an achievement. What it basically means is the regulator, in this case, the CFPB, has, has reviewed what you're doing and they see no cause for action. They, in other words, they don't need to take any regulatory action against you. So a no action letter is a policy tool that regulators use sometimes when there's companies operating in new areas or where there can be ambiguity. And so it's generally a very good thing. And we first got that in 2017 and then I had it renewed. Uh, toward the end of 2020. Yeah, that's just great to hear this type of approach so early on in the company. And I would assume probably played a pivotal role in your healthy growth over the last decade. So I mean, these regulatory nuances are hard enough in good times. But this last year, of course, you dealt with a global pandemic and economic shutdown. Can you walk us through those first few months of COVID? What happened to the company and, and what you saw with your lending? Sure. So, you know, through all of our history, one of the things venture capitalists would say, 
bank partners would say or potential bank partners would be, yeah, your, your model looks interesting. It seems to perform well. But what would happen in a downturn? What would happen in a, in a rough economic cycle? And we could sort of try to model that or, you know, in different ways, we would try to prove if unemployment went up X percent, this is what we think would happen. But you, you ultimately haven't been there and seen it. COVID gave us at least one a chance to do that. So it, it, as terrible as it was, it's a proving ground for somebody like us who has said, we've built a definitively more accurate, better credit model. And so what really happened was as COVID settled in, all of our bank partners did what they always do. They, they basically put on the brakes and they said, wow, unemployment went from 4% to about 14%, literally in a handful of weeks. And that is, that is unprecedented in the US economy. So they did what they've always done, which is they put on the brakes. Our volume uh, between um, uh, March and April dropped you know, 70 to 80 percent, mostly not weren't asking for loans, but because banks weren't willing to lend with such a crazy amount of uh, unknown going on out there. And number two, we took the opportunity to upgrade how our system handles macro events so that it responds automatically in smart ways to fast rise in unemployment or other other types of things. Um, And the long and the short, if you sort of not to belabor the story is, um, our loans performed as if COVID never happened. The, there was not a meaningful hit to the returns on the pools of loans that any of our banks or investors had, which was a fairly extraordinary outcome and one that I think um, at least provided another proof point that an AI-based model has pretty definitive advantages over a traditional model. That's fascinating. So there really was no material effect that you saw. There wasn't, in fact, the returns on the loans are actually higher than they were originally modeled to be. And, you know, of course, there's government stimulus. We don't, this isn't the sort of ultimate (laughs) proof point. There's government stimulus that may have helped. Um, But we have still every reason to believe that the relative performance of our AI-based models is pretty dramatically better. Far fewer people were going into forbearance, and they were coming out of it much more quickly. And the net of it all, again, was that there was no hit to the return that our bank partners were seeing. Now, Dave, so moving on the topic of returns, we must, of course, talk about your IPO. And you were quoted saying you've always dreamed of taking a company public. So we have a lot to dig in here. But first, let's talk about why you decided you know, it might have been time to go public. And why did you choose you know, an IPO versus a direct listing or a SPAC, which seems to be just more and more popular this year? Well, in terms of why to go public, you know, I, I guess we felt the business had reached a level of maturity. The kind of advantages we were seeing through our AI models had really sort of come to full speed, was, was really beginning to create the separation that was giving us the confidence in our future. I think ultimately when you go public, you want to be ripe enough, meaning you want your business to be mature, your processes to be mature, your team to be mature, but you also don't want to be peaking where you're like, oh, God, you know, a few months from now, we, we could just run out of juice. So, so that's the ideal place is like, you're mature, but you feel really confident in your, in your future for the next several years. And, and that's exactly where, you know, we came to be. But also say generally, you know, we're in a category that the public markets had, had to some sense written off, you know, there's just been some, um, some history in the market that wasn't right. as good, some, some players that came out and didn't do as well later and such. So we had to fight against a lot of that. But honestly, I, I felt that the private markets, the, the VC world was terrified of it. They would just say to me, you know, 
if I was going to raise private money, they would say, well, what do the public markets think of these companies? And I, as much as we tell them how different we are, we're not the same thing. You know, there's just this sort of approach that's hard to get over. The public markets ultimately would say, wow, that's a great business, growing, profitable, et cetera. And, and we kind of knew over a period of time, you know, the public markets are going to judge you for your performance. And that's something you know, we felt comfortable with. Um, with respect to, uh, you know, a, a traditional IPO, I would say, first of all, the direct listing might have been compelling to us, but we did want to raise capital, number one. And number two, there really just weren't many companies that had done it. And most of them were quite well-known, big consumer brands like Spotify um, or Slack. And, and, and it just was a little less clear how well it would work for somebody like us. So we, we frankly didn't give it serious consideration. On the SPAC front, I personally am a little puzzled by... <laughs> by entrepreneurs that choose that path. And I guess my best analogy is I think of it's like you're, you're playing a video game and you're about to reach the top level of the video game and you hand the joystick to somebody else. And I just don't know why you'd want to hand that joystick to somebody else. The role of the sponsor is just a bit of an oddity to me and I can see how it makes sense. But my view is, look, if I'm building a company for the public markets, my job is to make sure the management team and the board have everything we need uh, to lead this company as a public company, and and um, and, and so for me, a SPAC was never you know very appealing. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm I'm really curious to see how the next year or two plays out with all of these companies that recently went public via SPAC actually perform and how their strategy works out. So one thing I do want to ask though is there anything that really surprised you about the IPO process actually going through it? Um, that execs that soon to be public companies should uh, be aware of or be thinking about? You know, it's clearly very different than raising money in the private markets um, because, you know, the buyers are going to be able to trade right away. It's very, it's a very different dynamic than when you're talking to a venture capitalist or in trying to raise money, that's probably going to be a bet over a long period of time looking for a 10x return. So it's just a very different dynamic. And there's just sort of a momentum part to it where um, I think if you can get you know the process going well, you have the working with the right bankers, you've figured out how to tell your story, you know, it can come together nicely. It, amazingly in COVID, I mean, I never left my spare bedroom <laughs> for the entire process. So <laughs> I don't think anyone would have imagined that you could have an entire IPO process happen, you know, remotely, but it's now just frankly commonplace. And it'd be super interesting to see, you know, what it looks like when when you can travel, but don't necessarily have to travel to every city and to see every investor in person. And then in closing, I do want to transition to a bit more of a managerial and leadership section. So, I mean, you built a company from zero to a multi-billion dollar public company. I'm sure there were a lot of challenges along the way. What were really maybe the three toughest challenges you faced as a founder throughout this journey? Was it hiring, scaling, or even you know personal stress management? We went through a pretty significant pivot. So we had a you know the first year or so of the company's existence where the product effectively wasn't working or at least wasn't working well enough to just keep betting on it and, and raise the next round. So that that decision of when to keep you know shining and polishing and trying to make that first product work versus pivoting to a different product, you know that's a pretty gut wrenching thing that I think many founders go through. And, and, and frankly, I, I think most of that pivot don't don't end up succeeding, but we fortunately we did. So. That's one aspect that I think is, is really difficult. 
Another one really was, you know, we were first in a market where there were declared winners. So it was like I had so many potential investors say, this market is won. You know, this thing is done. Why do you guys think you can come along years later and, and, and establish a foot, you know, foothold here? Uh, and, and that, you know, that was another hard part. Finally, when the market was a little out of favor, it was just um, trying to overcome and explain to the world that we're actually doing something very different. And, you know, so I, I think you hear about startups where the term sheets are just coming in left and right. They're, they're being bid up. They're, the investors are fighting for them. That was not us. I mean, we frankly got, other than our seed round, I think we got one lead term sheet for every round we did, which is pretty extraordinary. We, we, we never raised as much as we wanted to or thought we were going to. And in the end, that was difficult. And it was hard not to always be, you know, the hot company that the, uh, the venture capitalists are, are tripping over to fund. But at the same time, it made us a stronger company. And ultimately, it's, it's led to who we are today. And over this time, you clearly had to make a lot of decisions, you know, jumping from executive to entrepreneur. Do you have a decision-making framework that you find yourself relying on? And did it adapt, you know, kind of moving from the role at Google to a more entrepreneurial role? For my own life, I just think about a series of experiences, right? And, and Google is awesome. And you can easily convince yourself once you're in that position, especially in your mid-40s, like, just ride it out, right? I mean, why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's lucrative. Everybody, right. I mean, you tell someone you work for Google, maybe even today, it's still like, wow, that's that's really cool. Certainly right. 10, 15 years ago, even more so. But you know, you're only going through this thing once, maybe as far as we know. And and having a new experience. And, and when I left Google, I think it's important to say the key moment was in talking to my wife when we said, you know what, even if Upstart fails, I would be glad I did this. Because, you know, 45 years old, never started my own company. And, and I have a career in Silicon Valley. and That's what you're supposed to. Do. So, you know, for me, it was ultimately the experience was going to be worth it, even if it failed. And of course, it's even better that it's, it's worked out well. But, but that's just my mental framework. I love that. In closing, you have reached the final round of the episode, Dave, which is the rapid fire question round. We have about 10 questions for you and then kind of max 10 second response each. Are you ready? Okay. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> All right. They're easy questions. Don't worry. First one, where were you when the bell rang? I was, I believe, sitting in this bedroom. I might've been sitting, <laughs> sitting in my living room downstairs, but uh, I, invariably I was at my house and sitting in front of the computer as pathetic as that sounds. <laughs> Sweatpants on, suit on. <laughs> no, I was just my usual t-shirt. I've kind of gotten into the just the, the COVID um, simplicity mode. Yeah. How about toughest part of being a CEO that some people might not realize? I think managing your own psychology, coming up with ways to keep yourself steady and, and moving forward and dealing with the ups and the downs because there are a lot of them. And you know, ultimately, you're the one who has to maintain uh, someone's of sanity and, and help drive everybody forward in confidence, even when there's plenty of reasons not to be confident. And kind of going off that, what is your proudest accomplishment of the last decade? I think, um, I guess I am proud of the choice to leave Google, walk away from something that was a sure bet and into something that was very far from it. And I had plenty to lose. And I guess so, th though I should say on the other side, you know, I had made enough money at Google, I wasn't putting my lifestyle at risk. <laughs> Right. But at the same time, you know, it, it is fun and I do take some pride that 
I went from a thousand people or so working for me at Google to zero working for me the next day and built from that. And, and, and that to me is pretty rewarding to build something that is creating jobs. It's, it's, it's a culture. It's, it's, a, it's a company. It, you know, that act of creation is unbeatable. Now, back to a managerial question, or I guess self-management question. How do you manage your email? Are you an inbox zero person? Do you use superhuman or another application? I'm a Gmail person, have been since, you know, it came out in 2004. So I'm pretty much a read everything. I don't delete things, but I, I, I read things quickly and stay on top of it. I don't tend to have a huge email problem. I think people overwhelmed with email are doing something wrong. You know, I tend not to be subscribed to anything. And a lot of stuff has moved off emails to things like Slack, certainly in my company. So honestly, I'm not overwhelmed with email at all. It's a pretty functional thing for me. And, and I like it. I actually think a lot of the important things that I do every day, believe it or not, are in email. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, a bit of a pivot here. We are recording this episode in early February. So there is quite a lot of mania, again, about crypto. Do you follow crypto at all? And what are your thoughts on the new movement of crypto lending as well? I certainly follow crypto, read a lot about it, hear a lot about it, have debates about it. I have not participated in it. And I can't quite get my head around if it makes sense or not. And, and at some point, I, I continue to believe it. Even if I believe in it, I missed the boat in, in terms of you know, the, where, where, where Bitcoin <laughs> is trading today. But I'm sure people right. have been saying this since the beginning. But you know, I just say... Being in, in the fintech world, I, I'm naturally fascinated with it, thinking about whether it has implications for upstart, but really, you know, generally interested in the long haul for, for Bitcoin, particularly if it can become a form of currency, which to me would be another uh, enormous change, not, of course, not exactly where it is today. Definitely. And then favorite dinner meal before a long night of work ahead? Wow. I'm a celiac, which is a, a, means I'm 100% gluten-free, so... Um, I will generally be, you know, a, a steak and potatoes kind of person. About number one post-COVID vacation spot. Everyone is vaccinated. The world is fully back to normal. It's 2019 again. Where do you go? I'm ready to be in Hawaii or maybe Tahiti or something like that. Warm beach um, and just <laughs> uh, enjoying life without a mask, hopefully. Well, Dave, that's all for today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. You've survived the rapid fire round. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story as well as Upstart's journey with our listeners. Thank you, Ryan. It's been great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.